Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel, and I am pleased to welcome today Jamie Peck. Jamie is the co-author with Nick Theodore of Fast Policy, Experimental Statecraft at the Thresholds of Neoliberalism, uh, which was published in 2015 by the University of Minnesota Press. Uh, Jamie, welcome. Uh, Nice to be here. Uh, So before we talk about fast policy, before we talk about this book, I wonder if I could ask you to say just a little bit about your own intellectual biography, the kinds of questions that interest and animate you, and perhaps how it is that you arrived at this particular project. Okay. Well, I think this um, the project that Nick and I uh, worked on for the last few years that culminated in the book had uh, gestated for a long time. Both of us have been working on issues of... um, welfare reform and labor market policy, uh, really from the 80s onwards. Um, We didn't start to collaborate until the mid-90s, but um, at the point we did begin to collaborate, what really struck us were the extremely strong uh, resonances and echoes between uh, policy reforms on either side of the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. Uh, Prior to 2000, I was based at Manchester University in the UK. Um, I was doing quite a bit of uh, empirical work in the United States. I spent a full year there in the the year running up to um, the Clinton welfare reform of 1996. Um, And after Tony Blair was elected in the UK, it was really quite striking how so many of the uh, policy routines, narratives, and so on that had been in circulation in U.S. welfare, welfare reform debates were being um, uh, retasked for the purposes of welfare reform in the U.K. Mm-hmm. And so, from I think from the mid '90s, when Nick and I started to collaborate, uh, we were having this conversation about um, uh, the connections between policy reforms in you know, nominally separate uh, jurisdictions and the complex nature of what it meant to transfer a policy idea or framework from one place to another. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've been, both of us were rather dissatisfied with the um, conventional literature on policy transfer, which struck us as rather literal in its um, concerns with if you like, revealed mimicry and strong connection in terms of the naming of programs and so on. That for us, it seemed to be skirting over the surface of a much deeper and rather more political and sociological set of connections between uh, systems of, of policy and regulation and politics that were, of course, had their own dynamics, but in a sense were beginning to get into dialogue with one another. Um, So uh, we'd actually uh, tried to get a project moving in the late 1990s, uh, uh, frankly, to no avail. Uh, We actually found that it was rather difficult to um, find uh, the resources to work on these kind of comparative questions, given that um, a great deal of academic funding is also siloed around national systems and Mm -hmm. Uh, the NSF in the US and uh, ESRC in the UK and so on. So we kind of had this as a back burner project for a while and um, we were delighted when eventually we could uh, put some of these ideas that we'd had to work um, about after 2008 when um, the Ford Foundation showed some interest in these questions as well. So Mm. they'd been percolating for a long time and... um, we were we were very keen to dig into them when we got the opportunity. And what is it what is it that you think made the, the the Ford Foundation interested in the kinds of questions you were asking, whereas others had been perhaps less interested, at least up until that point? 
Um, I, well, I think there are a number of things about Ford's interest. I mean, they, they were particularly interested in how it was possible to move uh, progressive uh, policies from one place to another. Um, they, like us, had been witnessing the fact that um, more conservative or neoliberal policies, uh, often many of which are quite stylized, sometimes technocratically framed and so on, um, seem to hop from place to place uh, with ease. Uh, in contrast, uh, the policies of the left and, and progressive policies and so on um, uh, were seemed to be rather more difficult to move or they needed more different channels to move them around. I think this is this is a you know, long standing uh, concern for for parts of the Ford Foundation, at yeah. least it's how to move you know, genuinely good ideas <laughs> from one place to another. Um, now, they've seen how. Um, bad or rather thin ideas were apparently <laughs> moving very quickly from one place to another. And they wanted us to get into this question of how uh, progressive policies would move. And uh, the other, I think the other notable thing about the Ford Foundation is that they were willing to take a bit of a gamble, I think, on this project. Uh, they, in contrast to um, uh, funding agencies like the NSF, or the research councils in, in, in England, um, Ford were less concerned that we could nail down every aspect of a methodology and a strategy in advance <laughs> and more willing for us to be a bit more experimental and open-ended, mm -hmm. uh, which you know, this phenomenon seemed to call for. It would be hard for us to have imagined in advance exactly how we would pursue these um, the policies that we followed in the book. Um, we wanted a, a, the remit to be able to be adaptive and, and, and move around from one case to another, not to be too rigid in advance uh, about our plans. And mm -hmm. um, Ford, we were delighted to see, were willing to give us that uh, freedom uh, to kind of explore these questions in a bit more of an open-ended way. Um, so why don't we use that as a, a way to talk about the subject of the book itself. So there are two policies that uh, serve as the, the foci for your analysis. Can you talk a little bit about what they are and how you wind up wound up choosing, choosing them? Yeah. Okay. At one level, this is a potentially long story, but um, we, um, we, we had been thinking for a while, as I mentioned earlier, about um, conspicuously rapidly moving policies, uh, policies that seem to be um, finding lots of adherence and reference points around the world. Um, so we, in a sense, we were thinking about the kinds of policies that might uh, enable us to explore uh, these questions of complex connectivity between policy experiments in different places. Uh, the two we, we chose were participatory budgeting, um, strongly associated with the city of Porto Alegre in Brazil and with the Brazilian Workers' Party uh, uh, and the Lula administration, uh, which had moved from uh, its site of origin, if you like, in Brazil to literally thousands of administrations around the world um, in the period since the uh, 1990s. Um, that was one of our policies, if you like, that we, we chose that as it seemed to us to be one of the favoured policies of progressives. Mm -hmm. um, it was almost, uh, it had been popularised and circulated by the global uh, justice movement, um, left-leaning and centre-left administrations all over the world and in Europe seem to be especially interested in borrowing these ideas of participatory democracy um, and using them to reanimate um, local democracy at the, at the municipal scale in, in a range of contexts. So PB or participatory budgeting seemed to us to satisfy that criteria of being um, an especially dynamic policy that was traveling from the global south to the north um, and, and opened up a potential field for us to investigate. Uh, the other policy that we decided to study was called uh, conditional cash transfers. This is a, a, a reform to uh, social policy, uh, which 
conditions that payments to um, uh, welfare recipients or to low-income families on certain uh, behaviours that the kids uh, kids must be in school, uh, they must be up to date with their uh, their shots in the local clinic and so on. And it was a kind of uh, paternalistic uh, policy that seemed to be at the forefront of social policy reform and likewise had travelled very quickly um, from a place of origin in uh, probably Mexico, but uh, Brazil also claims to have invented this policy, um, to, again, many jurisdictions around the world. Mm -hmm. And um, what interested us about these two policies is that the conditional cash transfers seem to be circulating with the um, uh, the approval of the World Bank and the multilateral agencies. Um, in a sense, there were somewhat conservative policies, but a little bit difficult to classify since they also featured goals of women's empowerment and uh, and they were somewhat redistributive to very poor families. Mm -hmm. uh, they weren't the kind of typical, if you will, off-the-shelf neoliberal reform. Um, likewise, PB seemed to be actively critical of neoliberal uh, policy making and uh, challenging those um, uh, policy uh, positions of neoliberal reformers and developing grassroots alternatives to market-oriented policy and so on. Mm -hmm. So the, the attraction of these two policies to us was that um, they both were potentially unpredictable in their origins and travels. Uh, a preemptive story didn't seem to easily fit them. Um, they weren't easily coded as Washington consensus or anti-Washington consensus policies, but were somewhat kind of complex and ambivalent. Mm -hmm. um, and so they provided an opportunity for us, I think, to um, literally to to follow the policy as we would describe our method and, uh, and if you like, see where it took us rather than begin uh, with uh, an examination where we had a fairly clear idea what the conclusion would already be. Mm -hmm. um, we wanted to do this kind of open-ended exploration, and they provided a chance for us to do that. So anyway, let's talk a little bit about, about more about the participatory budgeting. Um, it, one, of the, one of the things that I think is particularly useful and interesting about the book is, as you referenced earlier, it really does sort of, of uh, push against what can sometimes be a fairly simplistic model of policy transfer in a lot of the literature um, and suggest that in um, I don't know if you would phrase this quite this strongly, but in every instance, any act of policy transfer is going to be contingent. It is going to be dependent upon a whole host of things, including the, the means by which that policy transfer occurs and the, the local space that it winds up uh, being pulled into, right? It's moving into an already existing policy space. So there's, there's presumably no rational reason to expect that it's going to wind up looking the same in all of those places. One of the, the, the things that I found particularly interesting, um, especially about participatory budgeting, is that it wound up uh, starting as, as a policy that um, is often sort of traced to the First World Social Forum, but it too, like conditional cash transfers, winds up being uh, its own neoliberal kind of policy in some jurisdictions, and it too winds up being celebrated by the World Bank. Can you talk a little bit about about what the heck happened and how we make sense of that? Yeah, um, yeah I, th I think what what happened with both of our the policies we were following is that they, their journeys were um, we we didn't fully anticipate uh, what we would later encounter. I mean, our fieldwork. For the book uh, took place over a period of um, about five, four or five years um, in fifteen countries, correct? In fifteen countries, and, <laughs> and we did a lot of we, we far exceeded our original um, Ford Foundation grant, but um, we were able to do a lot of opportunistic um, work wherever we happened to be in the world, um, which tells a story itself in some respects. In that, if we were giving a talk in South Africa or Berlin. Uh, we could almost certainly uh, find traces of participatory budgeting and possibly also conditional cash transfers in the, somewhere in the jurisdiction. So we, we ended up um, uh, following these policies uh, 
fairly exhaustively, um, uh, but not completely, of course, because they were the traces were all over the place. But the, the point that you mentioned about the way in which participatory budgeting um, was, in a sense, partly co-opted mm -hmm. by the prevailing powers that be, you know, starting off as a uh, radical project of of democratization and what's sometimes called deep democracy in, in Brazil um, to some of its uh, weaker and uh, PB light forms, uh, which in certain European jurisdictions look like the opportunity for local um, residents to vote on the scale and direction of austerity measures rather than to vote on uh, priorities for social investment as really that was their origin in, in Brazil. So they've kind of been some of these uh, participatory budgeting projects have been kind of twisted almost to become their the opposite of their <laughs> their original intent. Um, they were used and approved by the World Bank as measures that would um, in some respects discipline uh, local government uh, uh, to restrain um, spending in certain kinds of ways in local government and so on. Um, and you might consider that story of um, co-optation to be a rather familiar one, um, the, the extent to which uh, a policy gets pulled into the kind of vortex of dominant power relations. Perhaps it, we shouldn't have been hugely surprised uh, that participatory budgeting on some of its travels became compromised um, even though it retained its kind of radical edge in many other contexts, um, ironically, to a certain extent in the United States, um, the, the participatory budgeting network there is um, a very interesting kind of progressive grouping that sees lots of opportunities to use the policy uh, progressively. Um, so there's this kind of complex, two-faced, double-faceted nature to participatory budge budgeting then, um, that we found it partly co-opted and partly retaining some of its original uh, promise. Um, but perhaps more surprising to us was the fact that um, conditional cash transfers, the arc of their transformation possibly bent in a rather different direction, mm -hmm. possibly even away from the dominant um, interests, although we wouldn't want to overstate that. Uh, we What we saw with the rollout of conditional cash transfer projects was to a certain extent they became more heterodox over time uh, as opposed to more orthodox. Uh, if, if PB was pulled in an orthodox direction towards uh, prevailing uh, political economic interests, um, conditional cash transfers at least offer the possibility of turning towards progressive policy implementation. They started to blend in some cases and in some countries with um, the interest in basic or citizens' income. Um, they actually provided a kind of demonstration case against some of the prejudices of conservative reformers. They showed, for instance, that um, welfare dependency arguments about how poor families would likely misspend um, um, their uh, uh, payments if they weren't required to spend the money in the right way on education and health care, for instance. Um, there was very little evidence of those welfare dependency um, effects such that the CCT experiment started to be a sort of demonstration case that you could, in fact, do a cash transfer to poor families. Uh, it has a with a positive effect, um, um, without ruining the national budget. Uh, these could be delivered relatively efficiently and could actually move the Gini coefficient in countries like Brazil. So um, then seem to offer the possibility, at least, of moving in a progressive direction. Um, I mean, there's, I there's a fascinating irony in, in, in the, the, the way that you tell that story and that, that you give an awful lot of credit to um, sort of the ways in which randomized control trials were central to 
encouraging local governments to adopt conditional cash transfer experiments, and they were often understood to be experiments. But in, in sort of the, if you look at that, that trajectory, it is that particular devotion to empirical evaluation that winds up undercutting the, the sort of the, the neoliberal rationale for these very paternalistic kinds of programs. And in some instances, starting, I mean, is it too much to say that it actually starts to open up space for maybe unconditional cash transfers, transfers, transfers that don't require that you engage in particular kinds of uh, behaviors? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, precisely so. Um, uh, and I think at least the, it begs that question. Um, it begs that question um, uh, by virtue of the kinds of questions that are asked in, uh, in randomized controlled trial experiments. It sort of asks, begs the question of, well, what happens if we relax or even remove some of the conditions on families? Um, what kind of effects do we see there? Uh, so I think Partly the randomized trials um, begged that question, even if they were predominantly funded um, in what we would characterize as a conservative direction. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and they reflect the fact that the World Bank itself has acquired um, new sources of influence that we would argue as a model builder. Um, And and it uses randomized trials to a certain extent to, um, to refine and scientize its models of preferred policy reform. So there's a big apparatus that's been built around that process, um, which nevertheless uh, leaves, I think, open some of these interesting questions about unconditional uh, programs. Plus, um, once we started to get into the complexities and the weeds of policy operations, especially in Brazil with their big Bolsa Familia program, it became clear that at the level of implementation, conditions weren't necessarily being enforced Mm -hmm. uh, consistently, strongly. uh, um, There was a certain degree of looking the other way uh, by policymakers at the local level when it came to conditions. So Bolsa Familia became a kind of a sort of natural experiment in having weaker conditions. Uh, and and I've precisely opened up this space potentially for, well, OK, what would happen if there were unconditional transfers mm-hmm. to low income families? And um, it's interesting that the organizations like Oxfam and some of the uh, Scandinavian countries have have supported uh, some small scale experiments in unconditional transfers. Um, uh, the results of which have been quite encouraging and interesting, even though they're massively outscaled by the randomized trials of uh, conditional programs. But um, in a sense, that that opening is there. It's an opening that was um, is there be, partly because of implementation questions in countries like Brazil uh, and parts of, um, of Africa, where CCTs tend also to be introduced with... Um, uh, less clear-cut forms of conditionality monitoring, and is uh, that is part of that simply because the the actual enforcement of of clear conditions is uh, it's incredibly expensive. I mean, New York City discovered this a hard way, right? The cost of the the the, the experiment in the Bloomberg administration, um, what forty percent, forty six percent, something like that, right? Wildly expensive to run that program. Is that part of what pushes against the strict enfor- strict enforcement of conditions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I think they, the conditions require, to a certain extent, uh, a strong state structure, or at least some sort mm-hmm. of parallel state structure at the local level. You have to have a delivery system and monitoring system, and so on. Where where those things are fragile or uneven, um, there'll be unevenness and fragility in the delivery of the uh, the program, and and perhaps also the monitoring of conditions. Mm-hmm. So. Um, uh, the, the World Bank's favoured CCT experiment is in Mexico, where there was a you know quite a, a well-founded sort of technocratic framework built um, around the CCT uh, program in Mexico, um, and if you like, that's the kind of preferred model. But yeah. as it got into the world in other places, um, um, in some t- 
cases, places where there's more frailty in the capabilities of the local state uh, at the local level, like in parts of Brazil, or ironically in New York City under Bloomberg, where um, the level, the desire to, well, the plan to kind of overburden the project with so many conditions and uh, it was really uh, uh, dragged down by the excessiveness of all of the conditions that were imposed on the uh, experiment in New York. It kind of failed because of the weight of those conditions. Um, so in, in a sense, these projects become uh, rather more difficult to operate when they're out in the wild in a kind of unevenly developed world with different kind of government capacities and interests. I mean, and, I mean, interesting in that, you know, I mean, arguably the New York program achieved some, some, some demonstrable, albeit modest successes, but because I think the ambition was so great that it was going to be this giant transformative thing right off the bat, um, was deemed a failure. Um, I mean, I'm also curious about sort of that juxtaposed with the fact that the Mexican program, um, survived and has changed to be sure, but has survived any number of different kinds of, of administrations. I mean, I guess I'm wondering if you could sort of talk a little bit about what do you think about why has the program in Mexico endured, whereas the one in New York City was deemed a failed experiment and has largely disappeared? Are there mm -hmm. lessons, maybe more generalizable lessons from that? Yeah, well, we suspect there might be. Um, uh, the Mexican program was notable for the fact that its randomized trial um, methodology was um, co-developed with the program itself, if you like. It was born wrapped in an evaluation strategy, uh, which would produce um, uh, some fairly clear indications of how effective the policy was quite quickly. And, and the, um, the plan from as articulated by uh, one of the architects of the policy, uh, Santiago Levy, from the start, was um, to make sure that a, an intervention could be constructed that was, in a sense, above political manipulation. Hmm. Um, and what it effectively did, I think, that the, the positive first results of the Oportunidades, uh, Progressor Oportunidades program in, in Mexico, the, the, the the fact that the first results were so encouraging um, meant that, uh, that the political class felt it was unable to um, kind of mess with the program or wind it up. I mean, there were, there's been some renaming and tweaking of it, but um, not fundamental reform. Um, and in a sense, its promotion as a sort of world class intervention uh, bulletproofed the program from um, the interests of successive uh, administrations and, and uh, over the course of the last uh, decade or decade and a half um, the program has really become a, a sort of fixture in the social policy landscape in Mexico um, it will be a bold politician I think that start that attempted to roll back uh, the program or to radically change it without the confidence that the reforms would be significantly improve the program. So and, you, and you think that that at least a, a non-trivial portion of that pushback would be international as well as domestic in Mexico? Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, the fact that some of the earliest um, um, uh, results of the Mexican experiment were published in English in Washington, D.C., uh, reveals the fact that um, the program was partly developed with a view to an external audience. Mm -hmm well as an internal constituency. Uh, it was designed to be uh, a world-class intervention with a world-class evaluation strategy attached to it, uh, which would make it um, yeah, beyond meddling <laughs> uh, and to create a really strong narrative around the program's success, which to, even though it may have been tarnished slightly, I think has been retained. Um, and likewise, the multilateral uh, institutions like the World Bank and the Inter-American Development Bank themselves want today uh, crisply formulated, implemented and evaluated demonstration project that would prove the case for these this new generation of social policies, um, which I think it, it certainly has. And I think that has um, 
that's opened the door to implementation in you know, something like 50 other countries um, since the, the Mexican you know, pioneering model of the late 1990s. So it's been a remarkably rapid change in a, in a policy field, um, welfare and social policy that uh, many observers would have said was a you know, rather kind of jaded, uh, devoid of new ideas mm-hmm. uh, and the kind of post-welfare reform climate in the United States. There was this kind of sense that um, the Clinton reforms of 96 had had worked in inverted commas or mm-hmm. just the oxygen and energy been sucked out of uh, the, the project of welfare reform. They seemed to, uh, even though uh, what the welfare reform in the US begat was a uh, replaced um, poverty on welfare with poverty in contingent uh, low-grade employment. I mean, it was could hardly be regarded as a success from a objective standpoint. Uh, but the the reform process was just completely burnt out, exhausted. It seemed, and so this is one. This is why Bloomberg, I think potentially shrewdly, um, although it didn't really work out so effectively, uh, decided that he would kind of try and change the narrative by borrowing from Mexico um, and doing something that attracted a great deal of attention from policymakers in the domestic sphere Mm -hmm. of policymaking. Um, uh, And so, again, he wouldn't have done that, I don't think, if the reputation of the Mexican model wasn't already quite well established. I was able to say this is already a world's best practice and we're going to see if we can develop a version of this in New York City. Um, so this, this is a little bit outside the, the purview of this book, so you can feel free to, to, to say you're not ready to sort of uh, think out loud about this on the spot. But I mean, it seems to be interesting that, that um, you know, your previous work, we think about workfare states, which you've talked about sort of o- obliquely, um, that a lot of the scholarship on welfare reforms in the 90s uh, in a number of different places has focused its attention on labor market effects and the ways in which sort of cutting back access to cash reliefs and pushing uh, 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 women with children and others out into the low-wage labor market has put downward pressure on wages, which has worked to the benefit of the people who you would expect to benefit from uh, lower wages. Um, I mean, it is, is, was, to what extent should, was, are people thinking about the labor market effects of conditional cash transfer programs? Is that playing out in the politics as you've seen it? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think that's one of the big longer term questions about these programs. I mean, the, the presumption, the World Bank rationale for them is um, very much as a supply side intervention, mm-hmm. uh, that if we can improve uh, the human capital of the rising generation of young people, this is an intervention focused on the young, uh, on the children in, in poor families, more so than their parents. The focus is on improving the human capital of the rising generation by ensuring they're healthy and well-educated and complete their periods of schooling. Um, uh, the, the orthodox uh, reading of that is that that should uh, improve their employability, uh, improve the quality of the workforce, and they uh, are become more employable. Um, I think the limitations of that um, analysis are that it takes little or no account of the structure of labor market opportunities on the demand side, if you yeah. will. Uh, yeah, what jobs are being produced, where, f- under what circumstances, and so on. And, uh, I mean, the, the evidence that there is about the effects of, of conditional cash, cash transfers says, tends to prove this point that supply doesn't create its own demand in the labor market, that, uh, yes, children are completing schooling and so on, uh, but they're not necessarily... Uh, big increases in uh, their um, success in the labour market yeah. because they are often entering weak labour markets uh, that are not providing many opportunities for career development or good quality employment. Um, and so, again, that might be another example of the way in which 
the actual experience of conditional cash transfers in the real world uh, raises some critical questions about the limitations of orthodox uh, thinking about employability. Um, it really begs the question about what's being done to improve the quality of employment uh, and the quality of jobs and, and the locations of jobs and their availability for uh, to, to low-income families and, and job seekers from those families. Um, so I, th I think it, in the bigger picture of um, workfare reforms since the 1990s, um, this will be uh, quite an important chapter in that. It's, it suggests that we've the whole kind of policy debate is uh, moving on in several ways, and uh, and I think these employability questions will become more and more pressing um, as these policies run for several years, and again beg that question about how far they really improve job chances. Um, so, what do we? Uh, turn our attention back to participatory budgeting for a little bit, if if you don't mind. I mean, it's, it's, I'm, I'm sort of, again, curious about this um, to grossly oversimplify a very complicated story, uh, policies that we could, could crudely describe as sort of two different trajectories, one from sort of, of almost a, 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 at least paternalist, if not neoliberal, ideology moving into something that is different. Um, and then something that 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 began as I mean, my first hearing of it is I was in living in New York City at the time and sort of was around during the um, introduction of participatory budgeting processes in the New York City Council. And it really was being talked about by uh, activists and advocates on the ground who had been doing organizing and work in low income communities for decades, trying to um, fundamentally alter the, the, the space for them to participate, really were talking about this as this is the thing that creates this sort of emancipatory politics by giving people direct experience in it, and it is going to change the way that we organize American democracy. And I heard sort of people who are not usually hyperbolic uh, talking about the program in those terms, and yet in so many of the places where you trace it, that is not how it's playing out. So, I mean, can you talk a little bit about how we how we explain that? And again, what are what are the lessons for the people who might like for this to be emancipatory? Is there something they can do, or is this so conditioned by already existing circumstances and power relations that there's a limited space to 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 make it more progressive? I, I think with the with the example of participatory budgeting, we've we see there a, a, a policy model, if you like, that was born in the context of uh, the struggle for democracy in Brazil. Mm -hmm. uh, and it gained its foothold and its momentum in the context of a, a an historic period of democratic opening, uh, where there are major problems with existing state structures and, and limited democratic channels and really provided a, a, this, the, an opportunity for this kind of grassroots, deep form of democracy that, that would democratization that would mobilize local communities, engage them uh, uh, with the um, uh, issues of social investment and so on in their very own communities. Um, so that, if that were its origins, we find it's somewhat ironic, you might say, that you could find it in uh, being used in the kind of mature, mature stage democracies of uh, the advanced uh, capitalist nations, um, where in a sense uh, it stands as a kind of critique of the lack of responsiveness of a formerly demo democratic system. Um, and, and, and just as you say, a, a kind of a, an opening for different kinds of political interventions at the local scale that might start to change the conversation as well as engage local residents in these questions of investment in, in, in parts of Harlem and, and so on. And um, I, I think those that have mobilized around participatory budgeting in the United States in particular, um, see this as a, uh, a transitional step, uh, mm -hmm. 
certainly not the end of the story, but as a way to kind of open up these conversations about how poorly um, uh, existing services and and so forth are, are serving uh, many low-income communities. And uh, and I think as a kind of um, demonstration effect of, of that point, uh, some of them have been quite effective. And, and so I think our sense was that the or the groups that have organized around PB in North America are done, have done so in a very uh, knowing and strategic way. Uh, there, there's no uh, naivety here <laughs> at all. And, and in fact, many of them are extremely well connected themselves into uh, transnational networks of uh, to Brazil and elsewhere. They don't know full well the story of... Uh, how participatory budgeting has been used in other places and so on. And so you have here an example, I think, of uh, progressive networking uh, with its own uh, international uh, connections, um, channeling into the very local scale interventions in Chicago, New York and elsewhere where there are uh, PB uh, beachheads have been established. Mm -hmm. But but, uh, very much as a... as a transitional accomplishment. I mean, one, one thing that struck us was uh, that it's quite often for PB projects to be supported by reforming politicians, um, often local alders or, or, or locally elected councillors, um, who are not necessarily uh, at the centre of power in their local administration. Uh, they may be in the freshly elected and in a kind of reformist uh, frame of mind. Um, you know, it's, it, it, there's some questions about how PB would be used in a, on a kind of mature, extended basis in some of those uh, situations, whether it is really a long-term intervention or you know, a way to kind of open up this political space. Um, and I think most of the activists see it in the latter as a way of opening up a political space and then, then see what they can what next steps are open to them. Mm-hmm. I don't think them necessarily see this as a as a way to completely reorganize um, municipal government in the United States. It tends to be quite modest, you know, maybe a million dollars yeah. uh, reallocated in a community in Chicago um, around, you know, improvements to uh, playgrounds or, or um, that sort of thing. So th- these are quite small interventions, but at least put these questions on the table. I think that's what the activists uh, have been mobilizing around. Um, So we are uh, nearing the end of our time. So let me ask a question that I probably should have started with. Um, So when you're you're talking about these two uh, cases as instances of fast policy, as policies that uh, move around the globe in in historically with un, uh, historically unusual speed. Um, is are we going to be seeing more and more of that? Is that simply a product of changes in technology and living in a a modern inter- interconnected era? Uh, I I think uh, that is partly the case. I, mean, I think uh, the fact that um, uh, it's very easy now to learn about what the world's best practice is in this or that uh, policy field. Um, you know, they say that uh, no policymaker is an island mm-hmm. anymore. Um, the, the policy making is now now takes place in what we call a relativized uh, context, uh, where uh, policymakers themselves have their own cosmopolitan connections. Uh, they have often a lot of information about other reforms in other jurisdictions. Again, none of the there's. Uh, we didn't encounter any uh, uh, naivety amongst policymakers here. They're they're knowing uh, actors here. Uh, they know that they're not going to be in the business of replication, uh, but they also see the opportunities to um, to move things along rapidly in a certain direction if there are policies that arrive with a narrative of success attached to them, uh, perhaps a track record of positive evaluations and so on. So I think. Our sense is that this is a, um, a significant change, which is um, going to be with us uh, the long in the long term. Uh, it's been co-produced historically with the um, the era of neoliberalism, of course, uh, and so there's a discussion about the extent to which um, 
this is a creature of neoliberal governance or um, it will still be with us even if we manage to shake off uh, neoliberalism. Uh, we suspect it will stay with us. Um, uh, it's independent to some degree of the neoliberal uh, moment, uh, although as a late 20th century, early 21st century phenomenon, uh, neoliberalization has only uh, it's, it's kind of been co-produced, I suppose, with these the deepening and thickening of fast policy mm-hmm. uh, circuits. Um, so uh, our sense is that this is a, um, a significant uh, transformation in the way that policymaking occurs, that uh, it will increasingly occur in this mutually referential, um, interconnected fashion. Uh, and therefore, there will be an amplified role for um, models, uh, both orthodox and conservative and radical and alternative. Um, uh, policymaking may increasingly take place in the shadow uh, of models in a positive or negative way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will certainly take place with a much wider consciousness about the landscape of reform uh, transnationally. Um, and so... Uh, that means that the, I think the policy-making process itself is a different uh, animal to uh, what it was in the 1970s or, or 80s. Um, um, that sounds that sounds like, a, a at least to, to my ears anyway, a rather sort of hopeful vision of where we're going, knowing that the outcomes could be all over the map, at least better opportunities for more complicated and more sophisticated and more informed policy-making. Yeah, and plus... I think um, you know, many, both Nick Theodore and I have done a lot of work um, uh, on the nature of the neoliberal uh, moment and what that means and uh, how it, what kind of hegemony has been constructed around neoliberal rule. Um, that can be a rather pessimistic, if not fatalistic, uh, endeavour. <laughs> um, uh, we actually wanted to be to do something very different in this book. I mean, we, we're familiar with those stories about relentless neoliberalization, privatization, and so on. Very familiar with them. We wanted to do something a bit different. And I think um, what we came away with was the conclusion that um, things happen at the level of what we call policy fields. You know, the daily struggles over the nature of programs, the nature of reforms, the nature of evaluations even, um, that make a real difference, that the the future isn't preordained. Uh, We don't know how this story will end. Uh, Even policies which have got an enormous amount of weight behind them, um, ideologically, politically, in resource terms and so on, even those policies can take unusual terms. and so for us, this kind of opened up, a, it opens up a different kind of agenda for working on the policy process um, in this rather more institutionally embedded, sociologically connected kind of way to think through the ways in which um, strategically policies may uh, surge off in a number of directions. And it may be possible to... Um, uh, to, to turn corners in, in surprising directions with many of these policy fields. Uh, certainly it's not uh, preordained and, and already fixed um, for the future. So uh, there are, I think, progressive uh, and encouraging openings here um, and, and reason to think that um, the battles over uh, the direction of policy, in be it in uh, municipal development or social policy or economic policy, those battles are uh, worth uh, persisting with because uh, the future isn't known uh, uh, the outcomes of those struggles and they are still highly consequential. Um, so in our last couple of minutes, um, we've been talking with Jamie Peck, who is the co-author with Nick Theodore of Fast Policy, Experimental Statecraft at the Thresholds of Neoliberalism. Um so are you continuing to work on this project, moving on to something new? Can you talk a little bit about the, the, the questions that sort of are sitting forefront in your mind at the moment, beyond the ones you've just articulated? Uh, we're working in this general area, uh, yes, certainly. Uh, what's happened, I think, over the last um, 
few years is that uh, a sort of interdisciplinary uh, project has emerged around what many are calling policy mobilities as a, a rather different approach to these questions of the connectivity and mobility of policies from those traditionally highlighted by the policy transfer literature. And, and this, this new approach to policy mobilities brings together um, geographers and urban planners like Nick and I, uh, anthropologists, sociologists, some political scientists. Um, uh, it really is a sort of interdisciplinary uh, project, which I think is opening up this terrain of um, not just fast-moving policies, but complex forms of connection uh, across reform projects and transformation projects, um, which really, uh, I think, opens up a, a quite different and exciting agenda for, for those of us who've been interested in policy questions uh, for a long time. Uh, often working in this area, it feels like you're uh, in a rather parochial field where you do a bunch of institutions and acronyms that people on the other side of the world aren't necessarily um, engaged with. Uh, this policy mobilities project itself is a sort of cosmopolitan uh, project. It's a project of exploring connections uh, across uh, sometimes long distances and across jurisdictions. Um, and, and at least on the basis of our explorations in this book, I mean, we found that policymakers themselves are just as interested in these kinds of questions as uh, as academic researchers. I mean, I think there is, this is a real, uh, there is a, a whole uh, new program of work to be constructed around this um, these questions, and uh, it's quite an exciting time, I think, for those of us uh, working in this field. Terrific. Um, I'm Stephen Pimper. I'm the host of the Policy Channel at New Books Network, and we've been speaking with Jamie Peck, co-author with Nick Theodore of Fast Policy, Experimental Statecraft at the Thresholds of Neoliberalism. Uh, and as I hope this conversation has revealed, it is, it's, it's, it's a terrific book and really does open up some new ways of thinking of how these kinds of things are going to play out in what is a, a world in constant motion and perhaps in motion faster than it has been in the past. Um, Jamie, thank you so very much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you, Stephen. It was a, a pleasure.